Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Big Nerdy Questions. If this is your first time, welcome to Big Nerdy Headquarters. I am Josh, and joining me tonight is JP. Hey, guys. And welcoming uh, back for the third visit, fourth episode, third visit, uh, from Starbase 66 on the Simply Syndicated Network, my OG podcast. Uh, You know him as Admiral Marius. It's Rick. Welcome aboard, Admiral. May Kayless give you the light to see forever, sir. Thank you, sir. And uh, as is the pattern with you, uh, the first time you were here, we talked for a couple of hours about the best two-parter in the next generation of Star Trek. And the second visit, we discussed the best and worst blind dates in Star Trek. (laughs) And uh, last week, JP hosted the best and worst blind dates in Springfield and Futurama. (laughs) Ooh, yes. Can't wait to hear that one. <laughs> uh, so now we, we are not doing blind dates and Trek again. We've gone for a more technical side. Uh, we're going to really let our inner nerd geek fl- flags fly with this one because tonight our topic at hand is what is the best ship in the Star Trek universe? That's ship with a P. <laughs> <laughs> Hemorrhoids do not concern me, Admiral. Oh. There's probably a hypo spray for that, one would think. <laughs> are, are you not familiar with that story? I, no, I don't think I... Hemorrhoids... Uh, it, was, it was from the filming of uh, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, because at that point, uh, by, that, by that point, David Prowse knew they weren't using his, his uh, vocals for, the, for Darth Vader, and so he would often just kind of screw around with his dialogue, <laughs> and... Uh, oh, geez, what's the character's name? Anyway, the, the officer comes and tells Darth Vader that the Millennium Falcon has gone into an asteroid field, and Darth Vader says, asteroids do not concern me, Admiral. I want that ship, not excuses. <laughs> and Prowse on the set said, hemorrhoids do not concern me, Admiral. I want it, not excuses. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and a lovely Star Wars anecdote to get us started. Uh, as you can <laughs> tell by the uh, the lack of commenting on that matt is not here tonight uh he was he was planning on being here but his computer decided to uh well if he were data he would have pulled a lore uh uh and before he could fix it well his computer decided to go bye-bye uh so he is getting a refit at utopia planitia and will be with us again next week (coughs) however that does mean that there is no sponsor for the evening but no bother, because we have a big nerdy recommendation, and as is fitting, it comes from our guest. Rick, what is what would you like to recommend for our listeners to watch and or read and or play? Um, well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, if you haven't seen the Black Mirror episode, the USS Callister, uh, I strongly recommend it. Um, it is, uh, if you're fam- not familiar with Black Mirror, it's a kind of a, a science fiction-y, anthology slash horror-ish kind of thing. Um, and they did, they opened their, their new season with a riff on uh, both MMORPGs, uh, virtual reality, and Star Trek. That is nothing short of genius. Um, so I highly recommend that. Uh, and also, it's, it's a bit of a reminder, but with the imminent release of the Ready Player One movie, uh, I went back and... The first time I read the book, I, re- I actually read the physical book and loved it. But that was back when it came out, and I couldn't remember too much about it. And I'm watching the trailers for Ready Player One, and I was like, I don't remember any of this stuff. Uh, so I picked up the Audible book, which is read by Will Wheaton, 
and never was a more harmonious combination of the material and the and the speaker than Will Wheaton reading Ready Player One. And I just want to tell you, saying that sentence without screwing it up, I'm I'm calling that a, a win for the evening for me. <laughs> Congratulations, sir! A, a tip of, a, a tip of my hat to you, uh, because that that was a tongue twister that I'm not going to try to repeat. <laughs> but read, but listen to Ready Player One. As narrated by Wesley Crusher, <laughs> Will Wheaton. Uh, he's not yeah. just Wesley Crusher. He's he's awesome in a lot of other things too. So, uh, but yeah, Ready Player One is one of my favorite books. So I'm I'm excited to see the movie, and I have not listened to the audio book, so I need to go do that because, like you, I read it the year that it came out. So while I know the general storyline and plot, and know some of the twists, I I've forgotten some of the intricate story with like the the quest, and that was my mm-hmm. favorite part when I was reading it was the quest. So. I uh I definitely want to check it out again. So thank you for that one. It's a good recommendation. Why, thank you. Uh, so tonight's episode... Now, first of all, um, tonight's episode would behoove you if you are on your phone or tablet. You might want to minimize the screen that this is on, pull up your browser of choice, and Google a search these ships that as we discuss them because it will be infinitely helpful for you to have a visual of the ship this is one of those topics where being an audio format does take away a little bit because if you're not as much of nerds of trekkies as we are you might not know the miranda class from the constitution class uh so we'll try our best to describe it as where it's coming from uh but we do want we do encourage visual aids on this episode. I think that would be agreed for all three of us. Uh, yep. So before we get into the meat of the ships, we have a couple other things I want to talk about first. Uh, first of all, Rick, yes. on on B and Q fifty, you were not able to attend, but you did send in a little bit of a you know message why you would have voted for Captain Kirk. Unfortunately, you were the only person of the panel of twelve that chose. Captain Kirk. So oh, now, r- remind me what the what the uh... it was Kirk versus Picard. It was oh, right. simply as that. So now I give you the floor if you want to <laughs> briefly explain to our listeners because I feel like Kirk got undercut in episode fifty because we we tried our best, but all of us at the end chose Picard, and I could tell it was going that direction based on our discussion. So I want to hear from a Kirk supporter <laughs> why Kirk is the best captain between the two? Um, <coughs> I, well, because it was easier for Picard. You know, it's it's kind of like saying that, uh, well, okay, the, uh, it's not even an, an analogy. A lot of people give the, the original series uh, a lot of crap for being cheesy, campy, cheap, etc., etc. Um, but without TOS, TNG wouldn't have existed. Uh, and so all of the mistakes that were made in TOS were, well, they weren't all rectified in TNG, but, you know, as each series goes on, the, the ones, be, the, the, the creators for the most part have learned from the, the errors of the past series, uh, except for maybe Enterprise. But, um, so I, you know, I love Picard. I think he's a, he's a very, very good captain, an excellent diplomat, uh, commands respect, handles his crew very well, but 
I don't see, you know, he's not blazing a whole lot of trails anymore. Whereas Kirk was, you know, the, the book wasn't written yet. He was kind of making things up as he went along. And if you actually watch the show, and even I uh, learned a lot on my recent rewatch of the original series in uh, going along with the Mission Log podcast. Yes. Uh, because I had bought into the Kirk myth of the womanizing and the, 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 the halting speech and, and, you know, all of the Kirk tropes that we saw J.J. Abrams just magnify in his movies. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed Star Trek 2009, don't get me wrong. But after that movie, I was like, you know, this, looks, this movie was like someone who wrote a Star Trek film having never seen Star Trek but only hearing all the jokes about it. Um, and Kirk was not a womanizer. Yes, he slept with a lot of aliens, but it was always... It, it was never crass or, you know, yes, there were times when he did so to try to save the ship or whatever, but it wasn't like he was constantly hitting on it. You know, he wasn't, like, turning in mid-stride to gawk at, gawk at women as they walked by like they did in the movie. Um, you know, he was respectful. He, you know, well, okay, every now and then he'd deck a chick if he needed to. <laughs> um, uh, but, he, you know, it, it's like saying... Who is the better explorer, Lewis and Clark or somebody with, a, with their GPS, if that makes any sense? It does, and actually that's, that's the best argument I've heard for Kirk. So I sincerely, honestly, <clears throat> appreciate that. Uh, what do you have to say, Josh? Uh, not much that can top that, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. That's a very well-constructed argument, and... Uh, I, I really should not try to engage Rick. That's all I learned from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll move on now, from... Yes, now, Rick. who would I rather play cards with? Picard, because I could take him for everything he's got. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so we'll move on from past business to current business. And um, first thing, I want to start general and then work our way more specific. So generally, when we watch science fiction... Now, we've, we've done an episode before on the best ships of Star Wars, and as Rick is fond to say, Star Wars isn't really science fiction. When you're watching science fiction that's actually based on, you know, science, you're looking for the ships and what they do and don't bring to the table. Uh, you're looking at, are they do they look cool? Are they functional? Do they have cool weapons? Uh, so, I, I open it first with you, Josh. When you first see a sci-fi movie or a TV show for the first time and you first see the ship, uh, do you have any reactions like, oh, this is cool or, man, th this ship is just so hokey? Like, what's the first thing you notice when you see something like that for the first time in a, in a show or a movie? The first thing that I notice is typically uh, how pretty or ugly the ship is, in my opinion. Um and that that is definitely an eye catcher, uh, and, and it, I think it can really make or break someone's perception of a sci-fi movie or series in the first few seconds based on how the ships look. Mm -hmm. um, at, be, beyond the, the 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 cool design of the ships, I, I like seeing uh, how they take off. There's always that hyperspace. Oh yeah, speed. yeah. Um, and that's why we'll go ahead and, and bring this one out early. Uh, that's why I, I like the the Orville, for example, uh, because 
the Orville has a really neat looking takeoff where it lights up the three engines in the back one by one and then just boom out of there with no flash or anything. Um, plus, the Orville has a very nice, sexy, curved design to it. But we'll, we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but to answer your question, Josh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the, the, the overall uh, aesthetic of the ship is one of the first things that I judge a sci-fi film or series by. And I think that's true of a lot of people, if we had to ask. Yeah, I would think so, too. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's not a ship, technically. But when Deep Space Nine first premiered and, and the stills came out, a lot of people were immediately turned off by this, the design of the station because it didn't look pretty, it wasn't clean, it was jagged and and different. Obviously, as you watch the show, you realize why, and it makes it better, because it's obviously a Cardassian station. But when the first publicity images come out, and you're like, yeah, I'm not so sure. There was definitely that negative reaction to to the design of DS9. Uh, So, Rick, as a... You work in theater professionally. I do. uh, So, as someone who works with set design and prop design, what do you look for when you first see a ship in a new sci-fi franchise or a new ship in Trek? What what are what are your criteria going down in your head for, like, is this a good one or not? I, I have three main criteria. One is, uh, like Josh, the, uh, the, the aesthetic of it. Is it pleasing to look at? And uh, my, my aesthetic has kind of evolved over, over the years. And I think maybe being a Star Trek fan uh, from such a young age, I don't remember a time when I wasn't a Star Trek fan. Um, I think maybe that has helped me to have maybe a, a broader idea of what makes a good-looking starship. Uh, because, you know, the Enterprise, she is streamlined in a, in a, a very un, uh, non-obvious way. I only had this realization after I got a set of blueprints, uh, and I was looking, I was like, wow. I was looking at one of the side views, like, wow, that ship really is streamlined, but it never occurred to me, um, because it's not aerodynamic, but it is in a kind of real subtle way. Um, you know, spaceships don't need to be aerodynamic, uh, so, but we tend to associate, the, you know, the aerodynamic surfaces and curves and, and, and angles and stuff with speed, with agility, with things like that, um, so, like, stuff like a Vorlon ship in Babylon 5 or um, even that thing that Amidala flew on in, in the, the prequels of Star Wars, you know, I, I may hate those movies with a passion, but some of the ships are really, really sweet looking. Um, but you can also do something like that with something that's not quite as streamlined. I think the Nostromo is a gorgeous ship. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's a real blocky thing, but, you know... In space, you don't need aerodynamics. You don't need control surfaces and stuff like that because they won't do you any good. Um, the second thing I look for is uh, plausibility. Is it something that looks to me like it could have people inside it or a person inside it? Um, again, going back to, to Babylon 5, I love the Star Furies. Those, those, uh, you know, they look like an X and not like an X-wing X, but like you know, an X with somebody stuck in the middle of it and some engines put on the back. It's a it, it's a wonderfully original design, but it still works. And that's another thing I look for is originality, uh, because if you go back to the fifties and sixties, everything that flew in space looked like a rocket, looked like just a tube with some fins on the bottom and some sparklers shoved in the back, or a flying saucer, or a flying saucer. Yeah, um, you know, mm. I love 
the uh, Forbidden Planet, but I hate that ship so much because <laughs> it's just it's a pie plate. Um, so it's got to be it's got to be appealing from an aesthetic standpoint. Otherwise, your audience is going to hate it. Like uh, the Hughes Borg ship, I hate that thing. Uh, there's just and I think they purposely tried to make it ugly. But you can do ugly and make it work. The Serenity is a hideous ship, but it works. Um, and then plausibility is a, is a, a big one for me. Um, and then originality. I'd agree with those three. And I yeah. I do agree with Josh's uh, evaluation of the takeoff as well. I, I love the seeing the ship in action as well. Like I, I love seeing it still, but I also like seeing the ship moving around ideally in three-dimensional vectors because you know well space Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yeah hyperspace is is an important part although um i i'm not inherently biased toward franchises that have hyperspace for example one of my favorite fictional ships is the ship that is sent to jupiter in 2001 i was going to mention the uh, are you talking the the leonov yes yes i love that ship I love it, and, and part of the reason is Kubrick and his team put so much work in with Arthur C. Clarke to design a ship that plausibly could be used for a long-term distance voyage to create artificial gravity. The spinning wheel that's the residential section of the ship is an ingenious design and is scientifically accurate. The more we oh, look sorry. at... sorry, yeah, that was the Discovery, not the, not the Leonov. Leonov was 2010. Oh, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, but... Um, I knew that it was one or the other. Sorry, but yeah, it's this. It's it's scientifically accurate to the point where 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 all those companies that are now investigating long space flights have looked at actually using rotating fuselages to generate a little bit of gravity. It's plausible. Uh, we're oh, yeah. we're way far away from it actually happening. You know, probably. I, I don't think the first ships that Elon Musk and SpaceX send out to Mars are going to have any sort of rotation in them. But I wouldn't be surprised if in the next century or two, we'll start, you know, building ships with art with, with gravity. That's not quite earth gravity, but enough to where you actually have some semblance of slightly normal day-to-day life. Uh, because it would be a necessity on that sort of a long-term tr- space flight. Uh, so I love yeah, that ship for that reason. I've always been curious as to why they aren't doing that, and I found out the answer uh, fairly recently. Uh, having a, a former NASA employee on the show helps me a lot over the yes, survey. Yes, uh, a big, um, big, out, big shout out to Unk. <laughs> um, the main reason they haven't done that yet is it's just there is a minimum size that your centrifuge must be uh, to to generate the kind of, of uh, forces needed to simulate gravity without making your crew all like die from vomiting uh and it's just it's just too big to practically build with our technology right now that makes sense and our resources are also not quite there for nasa right now yeah unfortunately uh but it it is plausible i think so and you know i should put out at the gate here i think the way that star trek explains hyperdrive or warp speed as it's appropriately known uh, not like the Star Wars jargon, is plausible because the way that they've explained it is that you create a bubble in space-time that can move, uh, it can manipulate time, essentially, so you are not moving faster than light, even though it's called faster than light speed, you're creating a self-contained bubble uh, 
that's what it looks like when you're in that in the warp uh, corridor, and that's moving the space time. You are creating rivers of space time that you're essentially catching the wave of and going that that direction. Was that the explanation in the original series? I don't think so, but we've gotten to a point now where the science is pl- is catching up to the show, and it actually is theoretically possible to have these bubbles of faster than light travel by manipulating the space-time continuum. Would there be side effects of doing so? Maybe, probably. I I'm not an art, you know, a uh, astrophysicist, but it's plausible now, which is amazing when you consider that even 20 years ago, everyone thought that hyperspeed and warp drive was the most outlandish part of any science fiction story that used it because Einstein is irrefutable. Turns out he is irrefutable, but there's always a loophole. So <laughs> I, uh, I love that about modern science is that we're finding these new things that just can change everything. Like quantum theory allows for entanglement of particles that are, you know, complete distances away. Uh, so you can have remote action on things through no obvious me- mechanism. And we have scientists who are now transporting, like literally transporting molecules because of it. So again, completely implausible at first, maybe not so much now. So you got to love well, that, right? If, if you don't mind me being a tiny bit pedantic about that, they're, they're not physically transporting uh, particles. They are trans, they are transmitting information and in, and causing a distant particle to become the particle that they quote unquote transported. That is correct. Yes. So in, it, it is a long ways off from even transporting something physical, but I mean, it's, it's still it's start. miles ahead of where anyone ever thought it would be. Uh, so I think that it's really awesome that you are on this show, Rick, because you are all, you are a space or a ship geek like me, but also because of your theater background. So when you watch science fiction shows that have ships, do you have a preference between ships that are made by hand by model makers versus ships that are designed with CGI? Or can you sometimes not tell? Uh, I, I definitely prefer models. Um, there's just a feel to a, an actual physical object uh, that is unmistakable. I think CG has come, you know, leaps and bounds since uh, the last Starfighter, which uh, even then I hated uh, the, the the visual effects on that because they just looked so bad. Um, you know, I applaud them for trying to push the envelope at the time, but they were, it really wasn't ready, and to me, it it really kind of torpedoed the the movie. And now it's almost impossible to tell the difference, but there's just there's an ineffable quality to a physical object being lit with actual light and the, the randomness of the scatter, the, the shadows, uh, you know, there's a little bit of chaos in there and it's real chaos. It's not programmed chaos because even the most advanced random number generators right now are not random. They appear random for all intents and purposes. They're random. But if you were, if you had the ability to compute like a computer, you would see that they're not random. Um, and so when you're programming a, a CG ship, and there are some amazing artists out there, I don't want to take a, try to take anything away from them, um, but when everything is programmed, there's going to be some level of mechanization and homogenization to your effects uh, that 
it, it's almost a it's it's a very subtle thing. It's it's something that it's not like you could sit there and go, okay, there's there's a bad shadow there, um, unless you're you know really low budget and then it really stands out. But there's just a there's a feel and a gravity to a model that CG has yet to ca- to capture. Uh, I think CG is a lot better at uh, uh, relatively static things like starships or map paintings or stuff like that than they are with with beings. You know, look at Avatar, one of the crowning achievements of CG in the last decade or so. And even still, the the people don't look like they're actually walking on the ground. They seem to just sort of be floating above it a little bit. um, uh, But the environments look incredible. Exactly. Exactly. And CG works best with things we haven't seen before. You know, if you look at the CG of the original Jumanji, those rhinos and elephants and stuff look terrible. They look fake as hell because we know what a real rhino and a real elephant move like, and those are just not quite right. It's that uncanny valley thing. Uh, but the dragons in Avatar, the dragon bird things, who's ever seen one of those things? So it, it works. Um, a and porg, so, for example. Yeah. <laughs> I love the porgs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so I think that there's, there's definitely room for a mixture of both. But if I had to choose... Uh, I, I, you know, and especially because that's one of the things that got me into the entertainment business was, uh, you know, when Star Wars came out, I was 13 and it just blew me away and I started getting the making of books and then they started putting stuff. Well, I had the making of Star Trek forever, the Stephen Whitfield book that supposedly Gene Roddenberry helped create, (laughs) um, just like Shatner wrote all of his books. But, uh, um, you know, I loved reading all of this backstage stuff and especially how the visual effects were done. And now, while it is rather reductive and dismissive to say, but it, it's still there. How did they do that? Somebody did it with a computer. You know, there's no, to, to me, if there's a, a making of documentary, I'm not as interested anymore because it's just looking at a bunch of guys in Korea sitting at keyboards. Um, the art is still there, but the, the, the artistry of it is not that interesting to the, watch. The anymore. cinematography isn't quite the same. It's, it's still amazing work, but it's not the same kind of work. Right, which right. I was actually going to ask you because one of my things I've always wondered and never had a chance to find out: How did the original series, since I mean it's a it's a model, it's a static model, mm-hmm. how did the original series successfully portray the Enterprise in flight in orbit? Was it done like um, claymation, where it was shot by shot, like animation, or was it uh, did they like drag it across a screen with a line, like a guide wire? Uh, how did nope. they do it? The well, the the shooting model of the original Enterprise uh, was a little over eleven feet long, and she's in the Smithsonian right now. They spent the last couple of years renovating, uh, restoring her to her uh, season two look. I I almost went there this this summer, and then my wife's car broke, and we had to spend money elsewhere. But I was all set to go up to D.C. to make the pilgrimage to see the ship. Um, what they did, they had her on a big. Um, not quite a gimbal. It looked, it was just a, a tripod. Um, but it could, the ship could be tilted in a couple of, uh, on the, the X and Y axis, a uh, little bit to kind of give slightly different looks. And then they just dollied the camera towards and past the ship. So the camera then, was moving, not the ship. Exactly. Exactly. And then they would just composite the shots of the ship onto a star field or onto, uh, you know, for like orbiting, they would tilt the, the, the ship a little bit to the port side and uh, and shoot it that way, and then composite it onto uh, you know their their map paintings of the planets. 
did they ever have shots in the original series of of more than one ship in the same shot? Yes, the Botany Bay. Uh, all of that oh, stuff yes. is done together. Because normally, what they would show the other ship and then the Enterprise. You know, because like yeah. when they encountered a, a bird of prey, for example, it was usually shot and then second shot. Yeah, because they never got close enough to be in the same shot. But there were a lot of shots with the Botany Bay was like right alongside the Enterprise. Um, one of my favorite things that they did, and it's it it if you know it, you can spot it. Is especially towards the towards the end of the series when they were really running out of money, uh, like uh, the um, the Ultimate Computer, where she's fighting. Uh, three other starships or four other starships. What they did was they went out and they bought the AMC models that were that were out the the plastic. You could go to Kmart and buy a model of the Enterprise. They just went and bought a bunch of those. Uh, they did the same thing for the Doomsday Machine. They bought a, an AMC model of of the Enterprise. That's why the the um, oh I'm blanking on the ship's name. Is it the, the Constellation? The Defiant? No, no, no. What Matt Decker's ship? Um, oh, I think it might be the Constellation. Oh, oh I'm, I, I need to turn in my, my turkey card. <laughs> I might not remember what ship that is. Hang on, i got to look that up or I'm going to be just embarrassed. Uh, uh, but anyway, they, they used a... Uh, there it is. Um, it's, oh, it is, yeah, look like okay, Constellation. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that would have been embarrassing. Okay, um... But yeah, the uh, they just built one of the they took one of those ships and just beat the crap out of it. But also the constellation, her her registry number uh, was hang on one NCC one zero one seven because the, the the ship only came with the decals for the Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, you make do with what you have, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't realize that they had just gone out and bought the store model of the Enterprise. <laughs> uh, so I'm guessing the only things that may have added in post, like if a phaser was fired, they they yeah, had to add that in post. Yeah, yeah, that was that was strictly like animation. But they, I think they did a really good job with it, not looking like cartoons. Oh no, absolutely not. It, it's uh, I think by our modern sensibilities, it, it's a little easier to tell, but it's it doesn't it still holds up. Mm-hmm. So, what is your opinion then on the TOS remasters, where they went back and changed the model and made it the CGI Enterprise? I love them. Uh, now, I was I was watching them a little bit over the, the summer break, uh, and they're looking a little little cheesier now than they did when they first came out. But I, I still think it's great. Um, Mike and Denise Okuda, who were uh, Mike Okuda, was very uh, in, uh, instrumental in the interior design of the uh, Galaxy class, especially the, all the computer displays. Uh, and Denise Okuda was uh, a big designer too on on TNG and Voyager, and etc. Uh, they worked with um, CBS, CBS, yeah, no Paramount, uh, to redo the visual effects with with CG, but to maintain the flavor of the original show. So they didn't want to just kind of throw in super hyper realistic you know you know stuff that looks like it came out of a, a movie today into the original series because it would be very jarring uh, so with but what they did was they they went to do tried to make it look like what if they could have done this stuff but it still looked like the enterprise it still looked like that era of ships the coloring and the mo and you know the movements a lot better 
the the Doomsday Machine was the first one I watched, and it's it's just amazing the combat in that. Uh, the Ultimate Computer is another great one to watch because it's got five ships fighting all at once. Um, you know, but they, they they also did real subtle stuff like making the Gorn blink. I think was was brilliant. Some people have been have made fun of that. I thought it just it added just a little bit of life to that costume without really overdoing. I agree absolutely, and, and maybe that's a future big nerdy question: is uh, what's our favorite alien design in Star Trek? Because uh, that's a whole other show. Maybe we could focus on the makeup side, but it's a uh, it's interesting stuff. Uh, so JP, <clears throat> when you see a model versus a CGI, do you have a preference between the two, or are you an equal opportunist? Um, I, I suppose they both have their merits and they both have their places. Uh, a lot like Rick was saying, um, I, I agree with Rick that the model has that tangible feel and. Uh, a, a phrase that I think he was dancing around was, "It has the perfect imperfections of a well of the real world." Yeah, um, but I, I'd say uh, if you're just showing this ship flying around, uh, a model is probably the best way to do it, in my opinion. Uh, in a lot of cases, especially with with the technology being the way it is now. Uh, it, it might be a, a better choice to actually animate battles between ships as opposed to trying to coordinate all of that. Um, but, yeah, there's not really much I can add on top yeah. of uh, well, what Rick said. That was very well put. Well, with Star Trek, I, I don't actually know about Discovery's um, cinematography, but I know on DS9, Defiant was actually CGI and a model. So they used the model when they could, but for scenes requiring like massive sp- the, the space battles or tricky maneuvers or anything, you know, a little bit more active than just flight or close-ups, they use the CG version, at least in the later season. So I don't know if there's a – I know Discovery is CG. I don't know if there's – is Rick, do you know if there's a model of Discovery as well? Not that I'm aware of. I think it's strictly digital. I think they haven't built a, a physical model of a starship. Uh, they may not have even had one in Enterprise, come to think of it. I think um, Voyager was the last one. Might 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 have been, yeah. Although I, I'm still surprised that they built Voyager, if they had a model, that they built in the uh, nacelles that go up and down. I like that. <laughs> it is a nice feature. Uh, so I guess that's a segue uh, into our... Ships, and we're gonna have two, two quick, two brief sections: Federation ships and non-Federation ships, and then at the end we'll pick our overall favorite. Uh, so, uh, Rick, since you, I know that you are a nacelles man. You you like evaluating <laughs> the nacelles. You're basically like that character in the Killing Game and Voyager. What's your favorite part of a lady? Her gams. In this case, it's her nacelles. Uh, but. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I want to find out from you, uh, what are your favorite Federation models? Uh, oh, I get to pick more than one? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 <laughs> well, because they're like your children. And at the, in the end of the show, we'll have to pick one each as our favorite overall. But go ahead and list a couple because uh, I, I know that you have more than one. Because I, I know that you love some classic ships, but you also have some soft spots for some more recent ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will always, you know, you you never really forget your first love. And Matt Jeffries' original Constitution class heavy cruiser 
NCC 1701, no bloody A, B, C, or D, uh, will always be my favorite ship. Um, I love every every inch of that thing so much. It it was so. If, if you study the the generation or the, the genesis of how the Enterprise happened, uh, looking in, uh, if if you can get a hold of a copy of the making of Star Trek, there's a lot of good information in there. Mm-hmm. Um, including a lot of Matt Jeffries, or, you know, kind of like back-of-an-envelope sketches uh, that he and Roddenberry were kind of going through. And we have since seen a lot of the what-might-have-beens have become other things, like the Daedalus class and, and, uh, and stuff like that. But, you know, Roddenberry was like, I don't want to see rockets. I don't want a flying saucer. I don't want it to look like anything we've seen before. And Jeffries was uh, not only a very talented designer and draftsman, uh, an artist, but he, is, he was also a pilot. And so he used his knowledge of, uh, of aircraft and of design and aesthetic and stuff when creating the Enterprise. And one of the funniest stories is that the, the, the version of it that Jeffries kind of finalized that he wanted to use had the primary hull, the saucer section, I hate that, <laughs> that delineation, <laughs> but the, the primary hull was below and the nacelles were pointing down but roddenberry when he handed the 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 paper to roddenberry roddenberry looked at it upside down and went yeah i like that so the whole ship could have been could have been inverted if roddenberry had had looked at the paper the quote-unquote right way um but uh so i i you know and it set the aesthetic for the rest of star trek now we have the you know a a primary hull and we have two nacelles now yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> you gave me the the, the, the doorway there. Um, if you have the the old Starfleet technical manual that came out back in the 70s, and I I, I do, uh, it is absolutely non-canon. Uh, there's a lot of accurate stuff in there, but there's also a lot of speculative stuff. It's a wonderful book, um, but it shows things like uh, destroyers, which is just a a saucer section with a single nacelle coming coming down from below. And Roddenberry has been quoted, and I double-checked this in the Starfleet, in the, in the Star Trek Encyclopedia, revised edition, which I got for Christmas this year. And it's Congratulations. Because <laughs> I could never afford it myself. It is a, not a cheap book, but my in-laws are wonderful. Um, but uh, I double-checked just to make sure, uh, because this book is considered canon. And in it, uh, Mike and, and Denise Okuda, who wrote this, they, they do a side they they have some uh, side notes, and one of the things they said under the the uh, the entry for nacelles is that Gene always insisted that warp nacelles worked in groups of two, that you had to have a pair. Uh, and I also have the Star Trek technical manual, the the from the Next Generation, which uh, was written by Mike Sternbach and the Okudas, or not Mike Sternbach, Rick Sternbach, uh, and it also says. It, it gives a little bit of wiggle room. It says that there were initially experiments with one nacelle or four nacelles, giving room for the stargazer, uh, and also, I guess, the Kelvin, if you want. Uh, but ultimately, two nacelles was pro- was shown to be the most the optimum for controlling field geometries and, and speeds and all this stuff. Uh, if you are a tech head, if you love this kind of stuff, I highly recommend reading the, the, the Starfleet Technical Manual, the, the Next Generation one, or Star Trek The Next Generation Technical Manual. Uh, when I got this book back in the 80s, uh, I read it cover to cover. Uh, it's just beautifully written, 
Um, and, uh, you know, most people would be bored to death looking at it. I, it even tells you what kind of bolts hold the goddamn hull together. It's so I think crazy. if you're listening to this particular episode, you want to read that book. Um, <laughs> but it, it brings up an obvious question. Now, JP earlier mentioned Orville. Orville's not canon. It has three. That can do its own thing because it's not technically Trek. But what about... It's not Trek at all. No, correct. <laughs> but Sorry, what I am not a fan, so... <laughs> But what about the future Galaxy-class ship in All Good Things? That was Q screwing around. So that was not canon either. That was just Q screwing around. Yeah, I don't... don't, Well, it's never been, as far as I know, directly addressed. But the fact that uh, we see that things that were supposed to have happened in that future don't uh, tells me that it was not really the future. It was Q creating a future to get Picard to do something he wanted them to do. Because Data does not end up teaching at Oxford. Exactly. And uh, Worf and, well, Deanna doesn't die. Uh, at least, well, I, I mean, we don't, I don't know what the, the time frame is on it, but, you know, I think they made it very clear that the future Q showed to Picard was not written in stone. It was and a possible was, future, but not the one that Exactly. Happens. And while it looked really cool when the when the, the the D came up with the third nacelle and the giant cannon, uh, I, I I don't take that as as something that's going to happen. I mean, warp thirteen. <laughs> uh, I take it as uh, if Riker had a wet dream while being with an engineer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I'm just saying, uh, he's been in the holodeck a lot lately. If you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> poor poor bastard's got to clean it up yeah <laughs> uh so obviously the original enterprise is, is it true that the element was you don't want a flying saucer you don't want a rocket but they combined for the primary hole and the secondary hole combined the two to create something different like the idea was to use elements of existing ships in ways that hadn't been thought of before yeah yeah um I mean, there was obviously a very strong influence from Forbidden Planet. Uh, in fact, the first time I saw Forbidden Planet, I was a little blown away uh, by by their ship. I forget the name. It didn't have a name. It just had a number. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you take you take familiar elements and you put them together in a unique way. Uh, and, and also, well, okay. Are we ta- uh, can I go beyond the Federation here? Sure. At this point? Sure. Okay. Uh, because the other one of my the other things that I think Jeffries was a genius with was the Klingon D seven battlecruiser, um, which was even more unusual and and different from what we've seen. Although still maintaining the bilateral symmetry and, and the you know the twin nacelles and stuff like that. Uh, and then when they when they moved to the movie and uh, oh shoot who did the who designed yeah, all right <laughs> sorry did that, did that get picked up. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was my cat. <laughs> Hello, Lion-O. Hello. <laughs> my bad. No, that's okay. I, I used to have a, a, a cat named Starbuck who was more famous than I, I was. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was Starbuck the cat and Barkley the dog for Simply Syndicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, hang on, I'm just, I'm just looking up, because I want to give credit where it's due. Because... Uh, Jeffries didn't design the movie Enterprise. 
on. I'm trying to, I want to see who did. Um, oh, art department. Oh, hell. All right, I'm not going to take up too much more time if I can't find this right away, but, um, oops. All right, never mind. I can't find it uh, on IMDb. I just I don't recommend. It. Anyway, I thought the 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 movie versions of of the Enterprise and the Katinga class battle cruisers were um, oh, I if I hadn't been so young when the movie came out, I probably would have needed to change after the movie was over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that gorgeous shot of the three Katinga classes coming towards the camera. And then zooming in, you know, and just ship porn of the highest quality as it goes over the top of the front of the ship. And, and they just go over the, oh, man. I, say what you will about the motion picture. The, the effect shots of those ships was, was just gorgeous. The five-minute-long uh, five flyover of Enterprise would not have worked if it was CG. I mean, no. you saw the intricate detail of that model. It was... I mean, for non-Trekkies, it seems like one of the most superfluous scenes in the franchise. But if you love the Enterprise, it's a nice thing. It's very nice. It, it's too short, though. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they and they have the the hell of a ship line, but that's uh, with the Excelsior. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then moving forward in the timeline, uh, I really like. The uh, I, I grew to like the Excelsior class. I didn't care for it at first, but I, I, it kind of grew on me. Um, Miranda class, I really like a lot. Yes, that is my personal favorite uh, class. So I guess I can mention that at this point. Uh, Miranda class, for people who are not familiar with the classes, you're most familiar with the Miranda class as the USS Reliant in Star Trek II, although it has appeared throughout the entire history of the show pretty much. Uh, there are several the expensive b- model they had to use. <laughs> exactly, there are several variants on it. Uh, usually it has a bar across the top uh, of the primary uh, hull that is uh, either a cannon or uh, or a torpedo. I'm sorry, or phasers or a deflector. Uh, the bridge section is kind of bulbous on it, but the main characteristic of Miranda is that uh, much like a uh, a Bulbasaur in Pokemon, it has no neck. Uh, it is... Never thought of it that way, but okay. It is a uh, primary hole, and then the nacelles are pretty much attached right to the bottom. Uh, so, take away the secondary hole, uh, the the drive section, if you, if you will, uh, and that's your Miranda class. It's a... I like the fact the Miranda class ship is not as big as the Constitution class ship or the Galaxy class ship or the Excelsior because in canon, it's not designed to be the flagship. It's designed for scientific patrols, supply runs, things like that. It's not going to be the biggest ship, but it's still, to pardon the pun in this case, it's a very reliant ship. It's a very reliable ship. Uh, Unless, of course, it gets hijacked by a superhuman and his uh, formerly frozen buddies. Uh, But... You know, that's not the ship's fault. That's, uh, well, it's Khan's fault. Everything is Khan's fault. But the Miranda class ship... Is class an extrapolation Miranda? Am I remembering that? It is. It is. Yeah. They've they've modified Miranda into a lot of other subclasses. If there's ships that are rendezvousing with the Enterprise-D in early TNG, it's almost always a variant of Miranda. 
<laughs> or or the Excelsior. <laughs> yeah, and of course we'd be remiss to not say that uh, Benjamin Sisko was in the Battle of Wolf three fifty nine on a Miranda class ship. That is where his wife uh, died, uh, unfortunately on the on the USS Saratoga. Uh, so it has been in, through a lot of iconic missions, but the ship design itself is really great. And I love it as a compliment player to the Enterprise. It's the unsung hero of the models of, of Star Trek. So that's why I personally love the Miranda class. But go ahead, Rick. Sorry to steal your thunder on that one. But no, I, I, love, I love the Miranda class. Cool. And, and she, she's a gorgeous ship. Uh, and the last one I'm going to mention uh, uh, is I really like... Uh, well, let me preface this. I've never liked the Galaxy class. Um, it, the interiors are fine. Uh, although some of the color schemes are a little, <laughs> but uh, you know, I've never had a problem with the interior of the Galaxy class. I just don't like the model. Uh, that bulbous, bloated, oversized primary hull or saucer section. Uh, it, it looks like look to me. It looks like a, a Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloon. Um, but <laughs> the Enterprise C, the Ambassador class, that to me is a gorgeous transition ship between TOS and TNG eras and I really wish they had gone with that design because I know it was it was a runner-up uh, and I think that one looks it has just enough of the earlier designs from like the movie era but with the, the, the more uh, softer kind of aesthetic of what came with TNG uh, until the Borg attack um, I, I just I really like the ambassador class a lot it's a really nice ship and also criminally underrated. Um, I think maybe because it's in yesterday's Enterprise, which in and of itself is a, one of the most iconic episodes of the whole franchise, mm-hmm. that the, the ship gets overlooked. But the Ambassador class model is a work of art. Yeah. And I would love to have seen a series uh, based on the adventures of Captain Garrett and the Enterprise C. I think that would be awesome someday. Oh, it's yeah. It's a shame that it's too late to, to get the actress that played her on um, yesterday's Enterprise piece. But, uh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I would have loved to have seen that as well. But we get other things instead. We get prequels. We got the Enterprise. And then we get another prequel with Discovery. So, you know, the the most recent... Sh- yeah. The most recent ship we've seen in canon, though, is... Well, I was about to say Voyager. But then I remember we, we saw Pathfinder in Voyager. But then we... And Prometheus. But then within Enterprise, we saw... Was it the Enterprise F? Um, oh, the J. The J. Oh, the one from the from the distant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the <laughs> distant like future. No, I didn't either. It was a. Uh, you could tell they were trying, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, then we also saw what was it? The time ship in in Voyager, where they. Uh, I forget the title of the episode, but where they kidnap Seven to have her correct a time malfunction. Oh. Um, the relativity. The yes. relativity. So that another future ship that we see. So. We've seen quote unquote future models, but you know not enough to really evaluate how the design evolves into the twenty sixth and twenty seventh centuries and later. Not really. Yeah, I, I used to like the Sovereign class, which is Enterprise E. Um, it, it's kind of whatever the opposite of grown on me is. Um, Your I, I like, enthusiasm has waned. Yeah, I, I like the the. Like, if you're looking at it from above, uh, the anterior view, but in profile, I just think the, you know, and I understand the idea was they were they were trying to build something to fight the Borg, 
Um, but I just don't like that kind of necklace just tapering up into the primary hall. I, I kind of miss a nice interconnecting dorsal. And that may be the nerdiest thing I've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag interconnecting dorsal. <laughs> Uh, uh, Josh, what, I know you usually pick ships more on aesthetic. Uh, so when you are thinking of your favorite Federation ships, is it an enterprise or is it something else? It is one specific enterprise that if I have to base it on seeing it for the first time and going, woo, uh, not Ric Flair, woo, but you know, like I just saw a nice looking car, woo. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's got to be the the Enterprise A when they reveal it oh, on yeah. uh, Star Trek Five, the worst one ever. Uh, well, they reveal I, it at the end of four, but it doesn't really oh, get right. into action into five. Yeah, sorry, my my bad. Um, yeah, so that is probably one of the sexiest looking Enterprises I've ever seen. I I love the. The, it's the shape of the engines, especially when they're lit up blue, but how they have those those fins on them that makes them look like 50s Chevrolet cars, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, I, I can't really describe it any other way than just looking, I just looked at that ship and went, nice! <laughs> so that's, that's probably uh, my favorite looking Federation ship of them all, to be perfectly honest. No, uh, to use an analogy, uh, an odd one perhaps, but uh, when we saw the Enterprise A at the end of Star Trek IV, uh, it was almost as important to me, if not more important, than a major character return. I was like, oh my god, the Enterprise is back and she's looking better than ever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jaw drops. I might might have cried a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. because uh, remember, this is before TNG or anything like that. We had no idea the Enterprise would be back at all. So, it, it is a, so what? I mean, I'm sure that you saw the Voyage Home in the theater, Rick. Yeah. What was the reaction when the Enterprise A came on screen? Well, we all thought that that they were going to be that the Excelsior was going to be the next ship, and that you know they they played that beautifully. They had the the shuttle was heading towards the Excelsior, and and. Kirk is like, no. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we're all, you know, we're like, okay, okay. Because I'll, I'll admit, I, I had a greater reaction to the destruction of the Enterprise than I did to Spock's death. I could see that. Um, and so they're, they're heading out, and, and, and even though when I rewatch it, I'm so impressed with the, the, the camera work. Because you... And you know, and I know that it, you know it could have been done with editing, but I don't think it was. I think both models were there. You don't see the the Enterprise behind the Excelsior until they want you to, and so it really looks like we're heading for the Excelsior, and then all of a sudden, they just they, the 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 camera just kind of lifts up just a little bit, and you see, oh my God, there's a ship back there, and then it rises up, and and it's the Enterprise A. And you see that A, and you're just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, the grin on my face, it's amazing the top of my head didn't fall off. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, we didn't have the, the Internet then. So, you know, we, we were basically relying on um, the, the trailers, the occasional news report, and Starlog. 
And so they were able to very tightly control you know, what we knew about what, what was coming out. And we had no idea. This was not even whispered about. And so it just blew us away. And in a way, I think that that shot, it's not really ship-related to say, but the closing shot of them back on an Enterprise bridge as a united crew again wrapped up the 234 trilogy in a perfect note. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even the fact that there was a, uh, you know, now looking at it in hindsight, it was a harbinger of horrors to come, but there was a little bit of the, the original Enterprise sound effects going on on the bridge. Yes. Which was not something that we missed. <laughs> no. But they uh, they drastically changed the design of the interiors of A from 4 to 5 and then from 5 to 6. Yeah. Drastically. Yeah. And I mean, I personally like the interior of six the best of Undiscovered Country. Uh, the bridge looks; it feels more like well, uh, Nicholas Meyer's direction is obviously influential in that design. But the exterior of A was beautiful in every movie. She is the highlight of Final Frontier, the only highlight <laughs> of Final Frontier. <laughs> yeah. True story. True story. Which, by the way, listeners, uh. I don't know at this point. We're recording before the end of the potable contest, but if we did win, and if you've given us Star Trek Five, you will hear our thoughts on that in much more detail. Oh yeah. <laughs> now I've got a question for you. <clears throat> Which is worse, Star Trek Five or Star Trek Into Darkness? Oh God! Don't, uh... don't, man! Come on. We're trying to do a show here. <laughs> um. I would say Into Darkness for the only reason that Star Trek V sucked, but at least the idea was original. It was a horrible idea, but it was original. Into, True story. Into Darkness sucked, and it was derivative of Star Trek II. So I don't disagree. Into Darkness. It, it, yeah, Into Darkness took everything that was good about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and said, nope, got to fix that. And they and kept that's in the darkness. Yeah, and and the thing is, if they would have gone with the fake plan of making the villain Gary Mitchell, it would have been a better movie. Yeah, <laughs> because we didn't that that story hasn't been overdone, and it really it would have given Chris Pine a much better chance to do real character work. Um, and also buy Benedict Cumberbatch as Gary Mitchell. I would. I did not buy him as Khan. I like him in most things. I did not buy him as Khan at all. Yeah. And it's not a racial issue. He just is, he's not right for the role. He's not yeah. right. Uh, well, I don't mind saying that it's a racial issue. He is not a Sikh. <laughs> that <laughs> too. He's a white Brit. Well, Ricardo Montalban's not either, but he could pass well, off as one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but in this day and age, they could have found a Sikh actor to play Khan. Well, you see, that that to me was the great waste. Uh, if they were going to go with Khan, they should have used oh and oh uh, the the guy that played Captain Robau in two thousand nine. Um, yes, I love him. he he would have made an amazing Khan, but they wasted him in a glorified cameo in the first movie. Indeed, they did. I mean, and it's a shame because, like you said, he would have made a fantastic Khan. Um, but no, alas, we got Benedict Cumberbatch in his stunt casting. So, yeah, that's my... Well, to make this relevant to this particular episode, I, I know you have a thought on this, Rick and JP. <laughs> Compare the 09 
version of the Enterprise that we lost in Beyond to the original model. I, I don't think it's much of a comparison, but uh, what were your thoughts on the 09 rebooted Enterprise? You go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it looked really good in that one battle on Yavin 4. No. Um... <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I don't know that you really see enough of it inside and out to compare it to the old Enterprise. Uh, you, you see plenty of, I guess you see plenty of outside shots of it. It's got the same shape, and, and all, all that checks out. But everything that happens in in the inside of that ship always happens so fast. There, it's just, I, I don't think you could you could actually fairly judge the 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 two thousand nine Enterprise. Period. Much less against the old one, in my opinion. I agree. I mean, when, it, like Rick said, when the original Enterprise was destroyed in Star Trek Three, one of the most emotional character deaths in a movie, even though it wasn't a character for me ever. When the O nine Enterprise just gets destroyed and beyond, I'm like, oh, oh well. That also happened in a, in a third movie. <laughs> yes, it did. Yeah, it's like that, so, that, that was my reaction. And hey, here's the funny thing. They've already confirmed if they do make a fourth one and it's not the Tarantino Trek, it's going to feature Chris Hemsworth, which means it's going to be a time travel story just like Star Trek IV. Uh, Maybe. Uh, it's clearly what they're going for. Uh, I would love if, to see what they do with Star Trek V. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, really enjoyed, <laughs> I really enjoyed Star Trek Beyond a lot. It was um, the, I, I think it's the best of the three. Absolutely. Um, the only sad part I had about the destruction of the Kelvinverse Enterprise was that they rebuilt the damn thing at the end of the movie. Yeah. I hate that ship. Flames, flames <laughs> on the side of my face. <laughs> what they did to my Enterprise is unforgivable. Um, I know a lot of people just look at it, what, it's a saucer, got two things sticking out of the back, it's the same ship. No. Uh, those the curved nacelle pylons, those oh, those bloated. It looks like the Enterprise got mumps. <laughs> the, <laughs> like, uh, I, the 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 primary hull's not too bad. It's rough. It's pretty much the same. But everything from the primary from the interconnecting dorsal back, I hate. Um, and then inside is just hideous. It, you know, calling it an Apple Store is is insulting to Apple stores. Um, oh. I don't remember who I was talking to a uh, little while, not, not too long ago, we were talking about the interiors of ships. And I could tell you every station on either the, the TOS Enterprise or the movie Enterprises, um, or even the TNG Enterprise. I could tell you where the stations were, what they do, who did what, how to run the ship. You know, I don't, you know, obviously it's not real, but, uh, and yeah, let me just let you know, folks, we, we know it's not real. Um, with the, with the, the, the Kelvinverse Enterprise, I don't know what station does, you know, aside from Sulu with that stupid joystick thing, um, <laughs> which it was stupid when they did it in, in TMP, too. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Um, no. I mean, it looks, it may, it may look cool, but it's not a freaking airplane. They don't need a throttle lever. Anyway, um, you know, you've got Scotty running from one end of the ship to the other. 
and you don't know what he's doing. I kind of dig the idea behind using a brewery as, as engineering, but it looked like a brewery. Uh, I, I just, I, I don't like, the, the aesthetic of the new movies is, I don't like it. Uh, they they kind of fixed some of my problems in uh, in Beyond. Uh, uniforms, I like them a lot better in Beyond. They got rid of that stupid flippy phaser bullshit in Beyond. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little... It's <laughs> okay. Um, you know, that the first time I saw the phaser thing flip around for stun or kill, I was like, that, that thing is so designed to sell toys, um, which is not necessarily a thing Star Trek does. You know, Star Wars, you want to sell poor dolls all like crazy, go for it. Ewoks and all that crap. That's what Star Wars, you know, Star Wars made its bank on marketing, and I give it to them. Lucas was a genius on that. Don't put that crap in my Star Trek. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't like the the, the the new movie ships at all. I thought the Kelvin looked like it was just big and clunky. It only, it, it didn't even have a nacelle. It had a lower... I don't know what it was supposed to be. Uh, and then the vengeance was just hideous. Uh, and my my only complaint with Discovery is I don't like what they've done with the ships. Um, aside from the Discovery itself, I like the Discovery. The first time that, that whole thing spun, I was like, that is so freaking cool. Um, but I'm, I'm not a fan of the, the rectangular warp nacelles. I don't know what the hell they're doing with the Klingon ships. Um, they all the, the writers say this is all going to make sense. It's all going to be going to be reconciled with what we know. I, I have faith in them. Um, but, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty particular with my Starship design, as you may have guessed. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, don't, I don't mind a new ship looking different. Yeah. I mean, that's my, uh, my only issue with Discovery at this point. Um, and uh, full disclosure, I have not seen all the episodes yet. Um, I don't have CBS All Access, so I've only seen clips and pieces of things in the ships, but it just does not seem to me that there is a good path to connect the aesthetic of Discovery with even an updated version of the aesthetic of TOS in the time span that they are saying the shows have apart from each other. I mean, not just in ship design, but like in the design of the Klingon race, for example, Especially when we had a canon explanation for the different versions of the Klingons in Enterprise, that yeah, seems to ha- it was, but it was an expl. <laughs> they have to at least address it. Yeah, they can't just let it go because it is canon, even if it's dumb. Uh, so, <laughs> I have one job on this ship. It's stupid, but I'm gonna do it. <laughs> hey, Dave in the brig. Dave in the brig. <laughs> Uh, so let's move on from Federation ships, uh, and discuss the non-Federation ships. I'll start with you, JP. When you think of the various aliens and other sundries that the Enterprises and others have encountered over the years, which non-Federation, uh, ship comes to mind first? Again, it's going to, for me, it's going to be, uh, as you might guess, uh, the, the one alien ship that made me go, whoo! Uh, and I, I I absolutely love the Klingon ships. If I'm being perfectly honest, um, yes. but the one that sticks out to me the most is one that we saw in uh, in Next Generation season four. Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. The Vorcha class. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. The most beautiful ship outside of the Federation in all of Star Trek, in my opinion. Just the way it's shaped, how intimidating it looks. It, it, it looks like it could scare away the bad guys in Galaga. It looks so intimidating. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't go anywhere near it. And it just, oh, it's so dark, and it's got the, 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 the red engines that light up just with the blood of their enemies. It's, just, it's the most Klingon ship ever. Is that and, is that Galron's flagship? Yes. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good yeah. one, laddie. <laughs> and and uh, uh, to to Rick's earlier point, it's also right side up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, I mean, my favorite. Well, there, there are two that stand out in my mind. One just for its sheer audacity in design, and the other is my honest favorite. The sheer audacity of design has got to go to the Borg cube. <laughs> of course. Because, I mean, no one to that point had ever thought, well, what the hell, let's just make a big cube for a ship. But in space, like Rick said earlier, why the hell not? It's, yeah. an, it's an efficient ship. It's, and, it's, exactly, it's exactly how the Borg would construct a ship. A cube or a sphere, which is why yes. I don't like what Voyager did with all the different permutations of ships the borg make perfectly geometric ships because it's the most efficient simplest in construction they care not about aesthetic at all they simply care about efficiency and assimilation so why would they have built ships with lovely little curves in them in voyager it doesn't make sense but oh wait this is the same race that's been after the borg cube but i digress (laughs) <laughs> after the board queen i mean after the board queen but i digress yeah. um but my favorite ship alien race ship i think because next gen is my first franchise and the the first episodes my favorite race when i was watching growing up my favorite alien race other than q but q doesn't have a ship were the romulans and my whoa moment was seeing a uh dedrodex d ugh Rick, help me out on this. D. Deridex. Thank you. D. Deridex class Romulan Warbird for the first time. Uh, I actually have a model of the Warbird at my uh, parents' house. It's still in my childhood closet. Um, I think or it might be up here somewhere in Mile, but I, I loved that ship. Uh, the green of the Romulan, uh, the, the motif. It's got the, it's intimidating. It's massive. When you put she's, it up, she's a beaut. When you put it up against the Enterprise D, it's bigger than the D, and not many alien ships in the TNG, with the exception of the Cube, were bigger. Most of them were, even the Klingon ships were smaller. Federate, the Ferengi ships were much smaller. So it's gigantic. And the most interesting feature, though, is that it's basically the most intimidating donut you'll ever see. Uh, <laughs> because it's got ship around the outside and a hole in the middle. Not H-U-L-L, H-O-L-E. Uh, it's it's space <laughs> in the middle of the ship. Um, so, for some reason, as a kid, I love that design. Looking back on it as an adult, I'm thinking, from the outside perspective, it looks badass. But from an internal perspective, getting from the bridge to engineering must have been one hell of a headache. Um, <laughs> uh, unless they transported you across the, to the other end of the ship. 
Uh, there are some obvious flaws in that. There's flaws in the fact like engineering we've seen can be taken over by trans dimensional creatures and cause time vortex things like uh, uh, in the episode where Captain Picard draws a smiley face in a warp core breach. <laughs> um, but I, for all of its flaws, I still love that, that Romulan warbird. And I think they missed an opportunity. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rick and JP, but did they ever have a shuttlecraft or the Defiant fly into that hole in a warbird to attack it from underneath the bridge? I've been trying to think. I think I remember, and I could be wrong about this, not not necessarily attack, but I think there was a time when a ship threw, flew through that. But I can't for the life of me think of when. And Listen, what the situation yeah. was. Listeners, if you know when that happened, let me know. Because I feel like it's a golden opportunity. I also feel like if they wanted to raise the stakes with the Romulan cloak, which, again, the cloak, of course they use cloak because they're deceptive species. I wish they would have done a secondary cloak that just is for the hull section. And then when they decloak, they have Romulan shuttles that they can deploy like TIE fighters. <laughs> I think that would have been an amazing little twist to have a secondary cloak. Uh, but again, you know, I wasn't the one designing these things, but there's so much potential there. And I, I was a little bit sad when the Romulans did get their big moment in the sun in Nemesis that we didn't get more of the, the Warbird. And then we got a lot of new ship designs that were supposedly Reman, but that I did not like nearly as much as the Romulan aesthetic. Uh, one of many issues I have with Star Trek Nemesis, let alone the fact that it killed the original timeline for so many years. Uh, but yeah, the, the Deagerdex is, it's a hell of a ship. Uh, yeah. Rick, what is your favorite alien craft in Star Trek? Uh, I've been trying to think of if there's anything I like better than, than just the, the Klingon Katinga, but, uh, you know, since I've already talked about those, um, now, just I for like clarification, the a lot. oh yeah, just to make sure, the Katinga is not the original one from TOS that has the feathers on it. No, that's that's a Romulan ship. But they used it as a Klingon bird of prey as as well, didn't they? Once or well, okay, they're, they're okay. They're, here's where the confusion comes in. Uh, in the first season, uh, the first time we encountered the Romulans in Balance of Terror, uh, they used the the Romulan bird of prey, which is essentially. It's a it's a disc with warp, with the nacelles kind of coming off at a swooped, and it's painted to look like a, a bird of prey underneath. Um, then, when the next time we see Romulans is the Enterprise incident, and by this, well, no, I'm sorry, I got my timeline wrong. The next time we encounter Romulans, I don't know if they lost the model or if it was damaged or what, but they they used Klingon D7 models and said that the Klingons and the Romulans had an alliance. And so everyone was using the the Klingon battlecruiser now. That's uh, it. Okay. And in the remaster, one of the things I I love because I I hadn't seen it until uh, my wife gave me the the Blu-rays uh, for Christmas a couple of years ago. In the remastered version of the Enterprise incident, they painted the bird of prey on the underside of the D7s that they were using, which is sweet as hell. Um, nice touch. Yeah. Uh, so that that's where that weirdness came in. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the Tholian ships. Uh, you know, the Tholians are, are a, a really underused race, except for the 
of the terrible that what they did with them in, in Enterprise. Um, although I do think, uh, um, is it in a mirror darkly or through a mirror darkly? I can never remember which it is, but the the, the uh, Enterprise mirror universe episodes were really cool, but the Tholians in that were some of the worst CGI ever seen on television. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, I like the Tholian ships. I kind of like that pyramidal uh, shape to them, sort of. Uh, you, it, it's like a, an, an obelisk that flies through space. I just I, I like those. Yeah, I, I I find it interesting, and it may be just a reflection of the series that we we love the most. But and I my by the way, my honorable pick for Federation ship was Defiant. I love that model. Uh, it's a it's a feisty little ship. But all of our <laughs> all of our picks were TOS, TNG, original movies, or DS9. We did not go to Voyager, Enterprise, or Discovery. Interesting. Uh, uh, well, Voy- Voyager, they didn't have much. I mean, the Krenum time ship was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. But we only saw it the one time. Uh, the Kazon ships are ugly as sin. Not good, and they 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 ruined the Borg ships too. Yeah, well, yeah. The, what Voyager did to the Borg is well, okay. The the Borg, and to use a, a a more current analogy, are a lot like the Weeping Angels in Doctor Who. If you use them just a little bit, they're scary as hell and seem really really great villains. But the more you use them, the more you dig into them, the more they fall apart, or the more contrived you have to make the the the. Uh, plot lines so that your heroes can get away from them i think the borg peaked at the best of both worlds and they could never reach that same level of intensity again exactly q who was a beautiful setup but the best of both worlds was essentially the movie while the show was still going on don't get me wrong i love first contact but the borg and first contact are not as scary to me even though they're designed better quote-unquote with makeup as the borg in the best of both worlds yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, uh, First Contact is my second favorite Star Trek film, but it does not bear too close scrutiny, unfortunately. It's it's sad, sad but true. And I, I have been intrigued, both in a good and also in a scared way, to see what Abrams' universe, what the Kelvin universe would do with the Borg if they ever tackled it. They have not done so yet. But I would be intrigued to see what they would do with it and if it would be as scary as it was or if they would ruin it. I don't know. I am honestly intrigued, but I don't know if we'll ever see that because now it looks like the Star Trek movies are going into the reins of Quentin Tarantino. So uh, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. We, yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath on seeing another Star Trek film, to be perfectly frank. And I'm not overly upset by that. True. As long uh, yeah. as... I agree with that completely. I would rather they keep making a show, a decent show, than than go back to the films. And and I'm here to say, and as as you may have gathered, listeners, (laughs) uh, I am not a dabbler in Star Trek. uh, And I'm also not an unopinionated dabbler in Star Trek. Uh, I am loving Discovery. Now, they have come close to losing me a couple of times. um, But especially given that this is the first season of a new show, uh, it's amazing. Uh, they are knocking it out of the park regularly. There's far more better than, than worse. And the, the, the quibbles that I brought up earlier about some of the, the, the design and aesthetic, 
some of it's just a matter of, you know, that's the reality of it's a TV show. You know, it needs to be a kind of a, a blending of TOS and the JJ stuff just to bring in, you know, it would be utterly foolish for CBS to alienate the people who, to, to whom the JJ universe is, is their Star Trek. So there's got to be enough of that in there to bring the new people in. Um, the writers have, are all Star Trek fans. They're all major Star Trek fans. Uh, and they assure us that this will all make sense eventually. Um, and they have earned my trust over the, the past 13 episodes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm in it for the long haul. And I think Star Trek is in very good hands, but it's where it belongs. Episodic television, even though it's on the computer, but it's still television, uh, where they have the, the luxury of telling a big story exploring deep issues, holding the mirror up to reality, which is what Star Trek does best, without mm -hmm. being obligated to have an action sequence every 10 minutes and wrap the whole thing up in 90 minutes. Here, here. Star Trek has always been best when it is at its philosophical peak, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my favorite episodes in any of the series is Measure of a Man, uh, yeah. which has approximately zero action scenes. Uh, but it is, it is a rumination on what it means to be human and what it means to be sentient and discovery has had, I'm not going to get into too many spoilers because I know people are watching it at different times, but we've had a character go through a lot of struggles because of an identity changing over time. If you know what I mean, that he didn't think he's not what he thought he was mm -hmm. and identity has been changing that way. And, uh, we have characters from diverse backgrounds who are trying to get things done together. If you know, if you've seen the show or read what's going on, you know what I'm referring to here. If you haven't, you'll understand it eventually. Um, but yeah, I, I know that we will cover Discovery at some point on Big Nerdy Questions. And I know we will also cover the Orville because I know that like, I actually fall in the middle with this and I'm not going to get into too much of a debate now. I like the Orville for what it is. And I also like discovery. I know that Rick, you, you do not like Orville. You love discovery. Uh, <laughs> Matt loves the Orville and despises discovery. So we'd have a very interesting debate when, when, when that happens, probably, you know, after season one wraps up of both shows, we can give them both an equal weighing on their, and, and on their just first season. for the record, for the record, I, I love the Orville and have not yet seen most of Discovery. So let, 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 me, let me clarify something on my, my dislike of, dis, of uh, the Orville. Um, I, don't want, I don't want people to think I just, I just knee-jerk hate it. I watched four episodes of it before I rage quit. Uh, okay. Um, my problem with the show is something that will never go away, and that's Seth MacFarlane himself. Because everyone on that show was working their asses off, with the exception of that ginger dude at the helm. Uh, he, well, he and Seth kind of ruined the, the show for me because everybody's doing a fantastic job, uh, enough to make me ignore the fact that it's a total rip-off of Star Trek. They passed homage five minutes into the pilot, um, in my opinion, of course. <laughs> um, I just, I'm, I'm sure there was a conversation with a lawyer of how far can we go before they can sue us. Um, yes. But... Uh, you know, 
the the guy that plays the first officer, the the the, the one with the the same sex couple and the and the, the, the with yes. the child, Bordas. Bordas, yeah. I mean, that dude spends hours putting tons of latex on, and he's doing a great job. Um, I love Adrian Pilecki. I think everybody on the bridge on, on that show is doing a wonderful job acting their asses off, even though they're ripping off Star Trek left and right. And then McFarlane comes wandering in, throws some dick jokes around, goofs off for a couple of scenes, totally pulls me out of it, and wanders off again. And if he were to leave the show, I'd come back and watch it. But if if that, and, uh, you know, maybe he's gotten better on that, I don't know. I, I made it four episodes in, um, and, you know, I, I feel like I gave it a, a good shot. I, I went in with, tried to go in with an old mind. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of McFarlane's humor. I've never been able to get into Family Guy. And uh, I just, I, I, I understand that he probably spends a lot of time in bed alone with a picture of Captain Kirk. Uh, but, and, and he, was in an, he was in an episode of Enterprise. So he's, you know, he's done Star Trek. If he can't get into it himself, it, it seems like I'm, I'm, you know, I can't be in Star Trek, so I'm going to make my own, and I'm going to piss all over Well, it. from what I've been told by, I think Matt read an article where he approached Paramount and then CBS subsequently and asked to reboot Star Trek on television, and they repeatedly declined because they thought that he would make it too funny, and he said, I don't want to make it funny, I want to make a serious Trek, and they they didn't believe him. So eventually Fox greenlit it, but only on the proviso that he make it a comedy. So, which is why you have all those really weird jokes. I will say they I, get they get lower and lower and by the end of the first season by the end of the first I, season, the, by the end of the first season, the tone is drastically shifted to um almost a mashup of Star Trek and Tom Baker era Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, is probably the best way to show the tone. It's still a complete ripoff of Trek, but the humor elements have been much, much subdued. Of course, Seth MacFarlane's still going to have his moments, but they have really... they. I think they tagged it as a comedy solely to get the green, lit, the green light. Mm. Um, so maybe season two will be more serious in tone overall. I, I don't know. But I think the critics have already jumped the ship on the Orville. There's no getting them back. But yeah, I don't want to go too much into it because that's a whole other show. It's one of the biggest raging questions in sci-fi fandom right now. Uh, And I don't see... I mean, I've always been... I like Star Trek more, but I like Star Wars too. I like the Orville. Discovery is really Trek. But I like them both. I don't see why you can't. And the good thing about Big Nerdy Questions is we are accepting of all nerd opinions here in Big Nerdy Headquarters. I know if we were on the Starbase, the Admiral could kick you out into the space dock. Uh, but That's for Karen's deal. <laughs> uh, thankfully, our space docks are, have been sealed shut ever since the uh, HAL 9000 incident of 2010. And, and please, let, um, don't think that I, uh, you know, I am not saying if you like the Orville, you're wrong. I just don't like the Orville. Uh, if, if, you know... Kayless bless you if you enjoy it. Dig your dig your bliss. You know, do do what you like. Dig what you dig, and uh, you know I will never fault you for that unless you say Star Trek Five was a good movie. Then you're just wrong. well. There are people who say that Enterprise <laughs> is the best series. So they're, they're to, wrong. Too. To, but you know, the, the, yes, objectively. But you know, everyone, it's it's relative. It's all relative. Uh, yeah. 
I suppose. So, uh, well, it's it's the champion rule. Uh, John Champion says on on Mission Log, every episode is someone's favorite and someone's least favorite, and every series is someone's favorite and someone's least favorite. Exactly. I mean, I, and I think when I realized that the most was when I was when the TNG ended. The best of both worlds won a poll as the best episode. And yet, I think two years ago, I read an article from, I think it was IGN or something, on why The Best of Both Worlds was the most overrated episode of Next Generation. So, it goes to show, you know, even an episode as critically acclaimed as that one is going to have its detractors. And when you see read it, when you read those articles, it does point out, it kind of shatters the illusion, oh, of course, it was a Deus Ex Machina ending. Of course, why didn't they just come back with the same plan uh, and just make sure you you can't execute sleep function, but it's still a great show. So, but yeah. you, exactly, there's there's going to be shows that most people think are stinkers that some people absolutely love. My guilty pleasure, I don't know why, is the Royale. <laughs> I know it's cheese, I know it's schlock, but I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah. But it's to each of their own. To each their own. Yeah, exactly. my, mine was, uh, I, I loved watching all of those reality shows about people getting their cars repoed. <laughs> <laughs> so we should do that in space with getting their starships repoed. That's an idea for a yeah. show. Uh, sp- sp- repo man in space. <laughs> <laughs> but dude, it's my only shuttlecraft. I'm sorry, your Latinum was a little bit behind payment this month. Uh, I'm really sorry, man. <laughs> I'm going to be at Starbase 54 for the next couple of weeks. If you can get me a, a few Latinum credits. Uh, you know, I don't have Latinum, but my, my lady can give you some Umox. I'm Vulcan. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm ripping on that now, but it could, it could happen. I, I could see a, a sketch done in that style. Uh, but for, for, for those of you listening, uh, it's really late at night on a work day for us, just FYI. <laughs> uh, which is why we probably should wrap it up. So, uh, <clears throat> what is the best ship in all of Star Trek, JP? Uh, I, man, you make me choose between the Enterprise A and the Vorcha. I'm probably going to have to say Vorcha class. Kapla! <laughs> Rick, is it going to be two for two? Are you going to go Klingon, or are you going with the Enterprise or something else? What's your choice? Well, it's got to be the Constitution-class heavy cruiser, Enterprise. There you go. As I thought you would. And <laughs> uh, I love the Miranda-class ship, but I've always had a soft spot for the Deidredex, uh Warbird. I don't know why, but it's it's my favorite. It, uh, it's... As flawed and as ridiculous as it is, it's my favorite ship in the franchise. Uh, and I would love for it to come back in some way, shape, or form. My only flaw with it, when you have to face it in Star Trek Online, it kills you. It, kill, it kills you dead. It is a phaser sponge, and you will never beat it unless you have an overpowered vessel. But, needless to say, it is a fantastic ship. The good thing with this is there's no wrong answer, though, because all the ships are awesome in their own way. You could have easily said Defiant or Voyager or Prometheus or Excelsior or the Enterprise B, which is essentially the same thing. You could have said the Cardassian ships, uh, and we didn't even discuss the Herosian vessels, which were very intimidating in their own spiky way. I honestly uh, don't remember what a Herosian ship looks like. Um, 
an elongated sea urchin, kind of. Ah, okay. Kind of. The spikes aren't that long, but it's very, very much the hunter's ship. Ah, Tony, <laughs> Tony Todd. Shout out to Tony Todd. He's one of our Twitter followers. He got the erosion started, although I know that he's he said that that was one of his worst roles because it took so long to get him in costume. Uh, but uh, well, Tony Todd is the best thing in anything he's in. So well, unless you have Tony Todd and Susie Plaxen in the same show, then you might have a problem. I mean, the awesomeness would take over, but I I don't know who would be more awesome. But I well, I'd have to go with Susie on that. <laughs> yeah, but Susie and Tony as the leads in a Star Trek series. Uh, my mouth is drooling right now. Uh, make this happen, CBS. Make it happen. They do it. They're amazing people. Oh, I know Susie would do it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and you can even recast them. They don't have to be people they've played before. New characters, new setting. I'd love to see them as a uh, a covert Section 31 team set 30 years after Voyager. Just saying. I think it'd be really... like Kind of like the Americans, but in Star Trek. I think that'd be great. Uh, but I'm not the head of uh, programming at CBS, am I? <laughs> <laughs> if I were, two broke girls would have been off the air years before it was. But anyway, uh, that's beside the point. But I do want to thank you, uh, Rick, for being on the show, and thank you, JP, uh, as always. But Rick, I for the first time in the history of Big Nerdy Questions, since you this is your third appearance as a guest, you have the honor, the privilege, nay, the responsibility, Admiral Marius, kill the Gungan! All right, here we go. Jar Jar Binks. You are guilty of being annoying, obnoxious, slightly racist, and a poorly written character. By order of the Sovereign Terran Empire, you are sentenced to death. This is very, very bad. Discovery is now well done, sir. That was epic. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> isn't it so fun to kill Jar Jar? It's so cathartic every week. <laughs> well, the best part is uh, I had this made, and then uh, 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 JP and I were talking while you were while you were off earlier. My computer died yesterday. Uh, at least it had the decency to give me enough time to bring my laptop home from work. Uh, but I lost that file. So I had to redo it again today, and I had even more fun doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it was beamed into space. Ah, yes, but the Terran Empire did kill him off, which was amazing. So Jar Jar is dead by the Terran Empire. Long may they reign, and long may Starbase 66 reign. Uh, Go download, play Starbase 66 on simplysyndicated.com. That's where you'll find Starbase 66 and all the other amazing Simply Syndicated podcasts, including, of course, uh, if you were on, uh, if you join as a member, access to Make It So, the original Star Trek podcast, 
where we first learned about David the Brig and the poor bastard who cleans up after Riker uses the holodeck. Uh, and the terrible, terrible things Jordy did to Data on the off hours. Oh, terrible, terrible things. <laughs> uh, so, by the way, Simply Syndicated is another recommendation. All their shows are amazing, and the people behind them are even more amazing. Uh, including, of course, Rick. Uh, so, Rick, please give our best uh, to Karen and to Unk and the rest of the Starbase 66 crew. We are, of course, if you ever want to have us aboard the station, we will uh, make sure we have no pathogens stuck in the transporter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, I definitely definitely have to do that. Uh, uh, now that we're back on, on uh, doing shows, de- yeah, thank, thank you. Please bug me. <laughs> I, of course, I tend to forget. So yeah, remind me that well, I said I want you on the show. We will <laughs> wear our dress uniforms, the ones that are very long dresses to our knees for the occasion for you. Uh, uh, but for Admiral Marius, for Rick, and for JP, this is Josh signing off. Kapla.